talking about water before we left to break so let's let's continue where we left off sort of article in the economist magazine july 19th issue about india and pollution which kind of hit me between the eyes article contains a picture of people uh, bathing in the ganges in varnasi the holy river but uh the holy river may have turned into the river from hell according to the article a diversion of uh, river water for industry agriculture and dozens of upstream cities uh have uh let's just say, devalued the quality of the water. In fact, according to the article, the Hindu priest manning one of the temples there on the river has in the past contracted from his drinking of the river water typhoid, polio, and jaundice, presumably from hepatitis. Here's what really got me. Now, by official standards, water containing more than five fecal coliform bacteria per milliliter is considered unsafe for bathing. The Ganges contains 60,000. Downstream of the uh, celebrated Ghats in Varnasi, where 60,000 people uh, perform their daily uh, bathing in the river, and also 32 streams of raw sewage empty into it, the figure rises to 1.5 million. So our recommendation is that if you're in the Ganges region of India, by all means, drink bottled water. Of course, the article wasn't, about how, wasn't just about how bad the water was. The article was about how India... Uh, has great aspirations to move ahead economically and yet still be kind to its water, air, and soil. Well, the economist noted, uh, and yet, as, in, as only they could, and yet, if India cannot begin to deal with its own excrement, how will it cope with the more complicated and politically contested hazards? A, uh, a legitimate question, we think. And speaking of bacteria, we'd like to refer you to The New Yorker, their article on superbugs by Jerome Groupman. Uh, thanks in no small part, we think, to the indiscriminate use of antibiotics in animal food, a practice which should have been banned a long time ago. We're now finding that in many parts of the world, uh, we've basically returned to the pre-antibiotic era. We talked about this some time back with Michael Pollan. We have a sneaking suspicion this has a lot to do with uh, this epidemic of antibiotic resistance. But uh, we do highly recommend the article to you, and... Article in The Economist uh, that really sort of uh, I find startling, particularly because I've watched in the medical world how this has unfolded. Uh, well, ulcers have become something that rarely requires surgery these days because we, uh, we treat a bacteria which has been implicated as being uh, you know, a major cause or a major cofactor in people developing ulcers. The bacteria is called Helicobacter pylori, and the good news is using antibiotics to wipe it out of people's stomachs has decreased the frequency of ulcers. But like so many things in medicine, an unforeseen side effect arose from doing so. In fact, this bacteria took a long time to be identified as a source of ulcers. It was thought to be just a symbiotic bug living inside of us. And it turns out when you eliminate it from people's stomachs, you increase their levels of obesity you uh, may increase the, uh, the risk of cancer of the esophagus. It may have a role in asthma. And it's been noted that the recent drop in H. pylori infections has almost exactly matched the rise in gastroesophageal reflux disease, which feels like bad heartburn. This is quite interesting. 
In describing how we now know that uh, H. pylori has a role to play in ulcers, uh, the article noted that the obvious medical temptation, and indeed what has happened in practice, is to annihilate the bacterium with antibiotics. This, that works as an anti-ulcer treatment, but when H. pylori goes, its homeostatic effect in the stomach goes with it, allowing the strength of the stomach acid to rise chronically. This then spills out over the top of your stomach and then leads to this reflux, which has become an epidemic in recent years. Another example of the law of unforeseen consequences. Anyway, I've, I've certainly been a, been a part of this uh, little adventure in medicine, and uh, we're going to follow up on that one. That, this is a very curious tale. Also from uh, the curiosity of science, uh, how about the fact that the war in Georgia, which, which frankly this correspondent has not studied enough to make, well, an overview of uh, for you, dear listener, but uh, I would note that it's having some strange fallout in the world of space exploration because they're going to um, decertify the space shuttle pretty soon. Space Shuttle's got to two more years left on it, and we were planning to uh, fill in the interim period till we got a substitute by uh, basically buying uh, a taxi service from the Russians to put us up to the space station, etc. Well, now we're a bit miffed at one another, and uh, that, that remains to be seen uh, uh, whether that'll, that'll go on as planned. Speaking of the U.S., Russia, and space, uh, in the wake of what's going on in Georgia... Uh, the, the Poles immediately signed a, a, a deal with America to put interceptor missiles onto uh, Russian territory. No, nobody's fooled that anybody in Eastern Europe imagines that these are going to be protected, could protect them from Iran. It's easy to understand the Russians being irked at what's happened to them since uh, the fall of the USSR. The Soviet colonial empire, which consisted of uh, 14 neighboring countries, uh, has been taken from them. Personally, I'm wondering, what's the purpose of NATO at this point? The North Atlantic Treaty Organization goes back to the late 40s, an effort for the U.S. and Britain to contain Stalinist Russia. Well, that's pretty much a thing of the past. So what, why do we still have NATO? The Russians used to have what was called the Warsaw Pact, uh, the, the countries that the Red Army had occupied at the end of World War II. And, uh, well, some of them are now, are now members of NATO. And speaking of the war in Georgia, which we're not going to go into too much detail on, on this trip, there's an interesting article by Robert Shear. It was repeated on truthout.org, also appeared on truthdig.org, asking whether uh, the Georgian war might just be a neocon election ploy. Shear points out that for reasons which are completely lost on this correspondent, Americans seem to think Republicans are better with national defense issues. Sheer raises the question that the war in Georgia could be part of a uh, kind of an October surprise coming a little bit early. He notes in the article that before you dismiss this possibility, consider the role of Randy Schooneman, for four years a paid lobbyist for the Georgia government, who ended his official lobbying connection only last March, just months before he became John McCain's senior foreign policy advisor. Previously, Schoenemann was best known as one of the neocons who engineered the war in Iraq when he was a director of the Project for a New American Century. It was Schoenemann who, after working on McCain's 2000 presidential campaign, headed the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq, which championed, oddly enough, a U.S. invasion of Iraq. He's one of the great reporters in America, Robert Shear. We recommend you check out uh, what he's got to say on uh, his or the truthout.org website. Oh, and you... Might want to check out the interview we did with him a few months back uh, here on our website, radioparallax.com. 
Let's do a few science articles. Uh, I like this one. This is not exactly a stop the presses kind of uh, item, but uh, some researchers did take a look at um, changes of behavior that people exhibit after having a little bit of alcohol, particularly in social settings, like in bars, like, you know, when you're eyeing members of the opposite sex. And guess what? People really do appear more attractive when our perceptions have been changed by drinking alcohol. Over in the UK, a, t a team at the University of Bristol uh, liquored up some, <laughs> some volunteers and then presented them with some faces and asked them to rate how attractive they were. And, uh, well, not surprisingly, the people who consumed alcohol versus the controls rated the faces that they saw as being more attractive than did the controls. Surprisingly, effect was not, surprisingly the effect was not limited to members of the opposite sex. Evidently, these drunk volunteers also rated people from their own sex as more attractive when liquored up. Another less-than-earth-shaking study done by Robert Lehman at Yale noted that uh, alcohol also encourages us to engage in behavior we would otherwise avoid. Yes, this reminds me of the guy they recently found up in a tree, who apparently would climb the tree while inebriated, and when he sobered up the next morning, after managing to not fall out of the tree, was embarrassed that he needed to be rescued. But I knew that the good people at Yale weren't quite sure whether uh, the fact that students that uh, they found more likely to engage in risky sexual acts after drinking, uh, they weren't sure whether that was due to the alcohol-lowering inhibitions through a direct effect on the brain or providing a convenient excuse for such behavior. Speaking of matchmaking, uh, apparently a recent study described as being, according to the Harris Interactive Online Survey of 10,000 people, notes that you're now more likely to find your true love on the internet than at work or at a party. I'm somewhat suspicious. In fact, I'm highly suspicious um, about this study due to the fact that it was apparently financed by the online matchmaking company eHarmony. And uh, sometime back, I made the mistake of signing up with those knuckleheads for a while. And man, they are a, uh, well, let's just say a questionable organization in this man's opinion. And we would emphasize that the opinions heard on this program do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, UCD, or the regents of the University of California. Even though independent studies have confirmed that we are right something like, I don't know, 97% of the time. And yes, I commissioned that study. And, and I have to say, I, 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 I do have to laugh over the fact that research done at the University of California at Davis conducted on mosquitoes, comma, and their avoidance of DEET, concluded that apparently the mosquitoes avoid the repellent because they don't like the smell. Yes, apparently fast and furious on the heels of this earth-shaking news is a socio-religious study conducted here at UCD that confirms that the Pope evidently is a Catholic. And you know, human nature, marketing, it's a fickle thing. We, we wish we knew more about it on this program because we think we ought to be a national show. Don't you, dear listener? We just fall down in the marketing department. Now here's disturbing uh, news on human behavior and marketing. Uh, apparently, uh, some researchers at the University of Paris uh, ran some taste, some taste tests on caviar. Now, there's various species of sturgeon uh, that produce caviar, some rarer than others. And unfortunately, uh, the volunteers in this group were given caviar, the same caviar. But we're told, in some instances, this came from a rare uh, this was a rare form of caviar, and uh, others were told, well, this is the more common form. 
And oddly, or not so oddly, even before tasting, 57% of the people at the luxury receptions expressed a preference for the rare caviar, while none preferred the common alternative. After tasting, 70% said they preferred the rare caviar. And this is, this is, this is so sad. I mean, according to some estimates now, they, they may wipe out caviar from the Caspian Sea area by 2012. That's at current rates of exploitation. Personally, I resisted the temptation when in Russia to indulge in caviar. I've had it before, and actually, it's pretty damn good. But, uh, you know, I think it's time to give the sturgeon a break. And as some bad news on the cold fusion front, apparently a man who'd claimed, a scientist who'd claimed that he'd achieved nuclear fusion by popping bubbles in the solvent, has been found guilty of research misconduct. The scientist Rusi Talayarkin, who was working at Oak Ridge National Laboratory in, uh, in Tennessee, uh, did some studies that others were unable to confirm. And uh, the issue of cold fusion was talked about by Arthur Clarke and it was probably his last interview uh, to Paul Parsons who wrote this up in a new magazine we'd recommend called BBC Knowledge. Their first issue is out on the stands and it's, uh, it's very promising. This could be a welcome addition to the reading material we, we uh, peruse for this program. Clarke, who's a pretty smart guy, was asked if he still supported cold fusion and he said it isn't quite cold and it's probably not fusion, but something's going on. Noted that for a decade or more, he's kept an open mind about these new energy experiments, even though we've yet to see commercial-scale results, or as it turns out, in some cases, reproducible results. There's a couple articles in this magazine we need to get to, if not this week, uh, then in the, in the weeks to come. But uh, one, that, one that caught my eye was the one on the Olympics. Something we haven't talked about too much on this show. Our friends, the Brits, seem astonished at their uh, surprising success, coming in third in the medal count, which, which of course, is, you know... A rotten thing, the metal count. Oh, and, and lest I forget, I do want to cite one individual at the Olympics. Apparently Togo has been competing in the Summer Olympics since 1972, and it was not until uh, these Olympics that they finally won a medal. Benjamin Bokpeti took home the bronze in men's single kayak slalom. This was noted as an unexpected event. He went, into, he went in ranked only 56th in the world, but he reached the finish of the whitewater course, and uh, the, chow, the, cl- the crowd loudly cheered him on as he paddled in the third place. We have to get Sean Minton, our sports uh, correspondent, to come in and talk Olympic stuff. I'm sure Sean, Sean is always good for a, a, a riotous discussion. But uh, the BBC um, Knowledge magazine, which was uh, subtitled, For the Curious Mind, Science, History, Nature. Noted in an article titled, Fun and Games, that there have been numerous sports that were once featured in the Olympics that no longer are. This time around, it appears that baseball and softball were both decertified for future Olympics. In other words, the the, the medals awarded this time are going to probably be the last. Uh, at one point, cricket was in the Olympics. Evidently made only one Olympic appearance. That was in Paris in 1900. And suspiciously, the teams in the finals appear to have been Britain, uh, which was basically just a touring outfit of cricket players, who went up against a French team that apparently consisted chiefly of Englishmen living in France. You know, at one point, the tug-of-war was an Olympic event. I think they should bring that one back. Uh, One they certainly will not bring back and should not was live pigeon shooting. This is evidently the only Olympic event ever to have involved the deliberate killing of live animals. Apparently, traps filled with with pigeons were placed in front of the... uh, 
armed individuals, and uh, they were let go, and they could shoot until they missed two. Per the description, spectators were showered with blood and bits of bird as the competitors downed nearly 300 pigeons. The author of the article, Julian Humphreys, notes, the event was never repeated, and it's perhaps not surprising that the International Olympic Committee denies that the sport was ever an official event. And as an addendum, he noted that another shooting event, which also might seem a little distasteful today, was dueling pistol shooting. That was during the Athens Intermediate Games of 1906. At least the competitors didn't shoot at each other, but at mannequins dressed in a frock coat with targets attached to their torsos. (laughs) And in what was described as probably the least spectator-friendly event ever to have been held in the Olympics... In 1900, they held a competition in underwater swimming. A Frenchman won the event in 68.4 seconds. A Danish competitor apparently remained underwater for an impressive minute and a half, but unfortunately swam less than half the course, so he had to contend himself with third place. All right, and here's an item I've heard about since I was in junior high. It's been a source of great controversy for decades, and they think they've now solved the matter of... A mysterious 2,000-year-old clockwork device. It's uh, the so-called Antikythera mechanism has puzzled historians since it was salvaged from an ancient shipwreck near the Greek island of Antikythera in 1901. It dates back to about 100 BC. It consists of more than 30 bronze gear wheels and pointers in a wooden case. The device is by far the most advanced scientific instrument to survive from antiquity. Nothing else close to its complexity shows up in archaeologic records for more than 1,200 years. The Antikythera mechanism has long been thought to be a mechanical computer which used sophisticated algorithms to calculate the motions of celestial bodies. A dial on the front showed the position of the sun, moon, and probably the planets in the zodiac, while the back displayed the 19-year lunar-solar calendar as well as the timing of eclipses. It's actually more like an 18-year cycle. I think we mentioned this on last week's program, uh, that the eclipse in China next year will be a matchup to the eclipse that took place in 1991, because these things do repeat in an 18-year cycle. Newly deciphered inscriptions on the device show that it was using some local, uh, local month names for some Greek cities. And they're speculating now this may have been a mechanism intended for demonstrations to a small educated elite. The prime candidate for this is Syracuse in Sicily. And the Roman author Cicero apparently mentioned in his writings that Archimedes in the 3rd century B.C., who worked in Syracuse, made a mechanism uh, somewhat similar to this. So current thinking is this device, made at least a century later, might be part of a tradition of geared mechanisms begun by the legendary Archimedes. Yeah, you, know, you just gotta love stories like this, or, you know, if you don't, I, I guess you can always watch Montel Williams. All right, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We've got plenty more 